changing mindset is one of the hardest things to change. And it doesn't happen from a one hour training session that you do once a year. Valuable, yes, it can help support other initiatives, but it's not going to change the system. I'm Salisa Steele. I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Diversity, equity, and inclusion are important goals for any business, including learning businesses. In the wake of George Floyd's murder, DEI gained ground, but many initiatives, unfortunately, have faltered or been cut completely in the years since. Our guest in this episode, number 372, is Miranda Mackay, founder and CEO of Mackay Consultants, a strategic consulting firm focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and inclusive product design. Miranda believes in the need for evidence-based, long-term goal-oriented DEI initiatives. She talks with Jeff about the role of data in DEI, how some familiarity with data analytics is increasingly becoming a prerequisite for many jobs, and why we need to think about diversity, equity, and inclusion like we approach climate change. Jeff and Miranda spoke in July 2023. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, obviously a big focus right now across the, the business world, across society in, in general. What does that work typically look like for you? Can you tell us about sort of what the, if there are typical engagements for you, what, what do those involve? Yeah, yeah. So we really focus on kind of three things. The first being what we call design thinking and training. So we do a lot of work with organizations and supporting them on just kind of getting people upskilled on concepts of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we use innovative, say, techniques to to kind of do that, which I'm sure we'll talk about throughout this this today. And the second piece, we focus on uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy and analytics. So this is really for organizations that don't really understand where to start or maybe they have a challenge within their organization that they're trying to address. And what we do is we'll come in and support organizations in developing out their strategic plan as it relates to obviously diversity, equity, and inclusion, but making sure that intersects with all of the other different business domains within the organization. And we like to take an analytics approach. We don't do diversity, equity, and inclusion based on gut feel, but really, really evidence-based work. And then the last area we focus on is what we call inclusive product design, where we work with organizations primarily in the e-commerce or SaaS-based solutions, so software as a service, and we support them in standing up products that that actually meet the needs of the diverse users that are using them. So we manage product teams, we do UI, UX design, and we really help organizations ensure that their products are actually inclusive and will meet their users' needs. And I definitely want to come back to that product design component uh, of this, because I think that's just so interesting. And and certainly the analytics as well, because I know that's probably going to go into the product design as much as it goes into everything else you do. But before we turn to that, you seem like a particularly good person to ask about just kind of the overall state of DEI efforts right now, because this has been something, you know, organizations have been focusing on for a number of years now, forefront of a lot of managers' minds, a lot of leaders' minds. How much progress are we making? How well are organizations doing with DEI? Great question. So 
I, I would say, unfortunately, I think we could be doing a bit better. So, you know, after the murder of George Floyd, you saw a huge uptake in everyone focusing now on diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. Customers, employees started really pressuring organizations to do something about all of the systemic barriers that have existed forever, um, but really kind of making sure that they're holding themselves accountable. So over the past couple of years, you saw a lot of initiatives come out. I think some organizations did have good intention, but a lot of them, unfortunately, were very much pick the box types mm. of initiatives. And now what we're, you know, essentially seeing is, you know, it's not as popular in, in, in news anymore. So a lot of organizations are kind of removing some of those efforts. For example, the layoffs that we saw previously, the previous wave of layoffs primarily hit the diversity, equity, inclusion space and HR space. Because I think what was happening was we highly sensationalized concepts of diversity, equity, and inclusion and, you know, put all of these kind of tick the box solutions in place. But we're not actually looking at kind of sustainable goals and sustainable development. So if I give an example, you know, uh, concepts of racism, as an example, have been historically uh, a challenge that many, you know, for years that we've had, you're not going to eradicate racism in a year, right? And when you would see a lot of these initiatives that organizations had, they were completely, one, not based on data. Mm. Uh, so they would say things like, we want an equal workforce by, you know, the next two years. Well, when you look at the pipeline of people coming in, you're not necessarily going to be able to achieve an equal workforce by that time frame. So a lot of the kind of solutions that we saw just weren't, you know, based on evidence. They were kind of meant to tick the box. And then as soon as attention has moved away from DEI, people have kind of forgot about those initiatives, which is really disappointing, essentially, that that's been happening. So, yeah, I would say the state of DEI maybe could be better. I always challenge organizations to think about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the way that we think about climate change initiatives. You know, you'll hear something like, we want to be emissions-free by 2050, right? Now, what is all of the infrastructure and the things that we need to be able to do to get to that goal? With, for some reason, DEI, we have these very short-term goals. Like, like I said, we want an equal workforce in two years. That's obviously not something that's sustainable, and a lot of organizations are setting them up for failure. And then when they're not achieving those goals, they're like, well, the program's useless, so we're going to offboard these employees. So I think, you know, what I see in this space is really thinking more sustainably about these goals. And I think when organizations do that, they're going to start to yield a lot more impact, and not just, again, across you know, DI, but across their entire business domains. I can see how sustainability would be certainly a problem with an issue, a challenge like diversity, equity, and inclusion. Maybe say a bit more, you mentioned, you know, looking at the pipeline, for example, in terms of change happening. Um, maybe say a bit more about how you're using data and, and analytics to inform how organizations can develop a sustainable strategy and, and maybe also how education and training fit in there. Because, you know, if we're talking about long-term change, obviously there has to be some, some change in the, in the way people think and that requires training and education. Yeah, 100%. How we think about DEI and how we look at data to help support that is we like to look holistically at your internal as well as external data. So let me just explain that a little bit. So within an HR department, as an example, you have tons of access to data. If you're not too familiar with the HR space, you have your HRIS or human resources information systems. You have your applicant tracking systems. You probably have learning and development systems. Uh, you have performance evaluation systems. And then not to mention all of the other data across other business domains like sales data, customer success data, et cetera, around employees. That's all very valuable data points to understand what's actually going on within an organization. 
So as an example, let's say you notice that employees aren't being promoted at the same rates, or you want to see if, you know, people of color are getting the same access to promotions as non-people of color, as an example. Um, Most organizations don't actually look at their data to understand promotion data. They'll make blanket assumptions. And by doing that, they're not understanding, well, why is maybe this individual not being promoted? So you want to look at all of those different data sources that you have to actually pinpoint some of those challenges. Was there, you know, under the performance evaluation data, for example, are they being evaluated maybe in a biased way? You can do things by looking at, you know, literally using natural language processing, AI to evaluate that to see if there's a gap there. Are, you know, proportionally are a specific group of people and it may be a specific department not moving up at the same rates as others. So those are all kind of just, you know, examples, but things that you want to look at to really understand what the root cause of the problem is, as opposed to diagnosing the problem without ever understanding it. And that's what we've seen today in DEI. It's like, this is the problem, racism or something like that. And it's like, let's dive into that and actually see where the barrier exists so we can address that and then create change around that topic. And then on the flip side in the learning and development space, I find a lot of the learning and development focuses on, I mean, I'm sure you say it, unconscious bias training. That's mm. like the number one thing that people have. Well, we we know that, you know, just doing, for example, training alone isn't enough to eradicate some of these systemic barriers. It's great to inform people on some of the challenges that other people may experience or some of the terms and um, terminology around, you know, what's going on from a DEI perspective. But changing behavior and you know this or changing mindset is one of the hardest things to change and it doesn't happen from a one-hour training session that you do once a year valuable yes it can help support other initiatives but it's not going to change the system so you need to bring in all of these different tools and techniques if you really want to change something and change mindset and behavior that goes beyond just training we're grateful to wvt systems for sponsoring the leading learning podcast Top Class LMS provides the tools for you to become the preferred provider in your market, delivering value to learners at every stage of their working life. WBT Systems' award-winning learning system enables delivery of impactful continuing education, professional development, and certification programs. The Top Class LMS team supports learning businesses in using integrated learning technology to gain greater understanding of learners' needs and behaviors, to enhance engagement, to aid recruitment and retention, and to create and grow non-dues revenue streams. WBT Systems will work with you to truly understand your preferences, needs, and challenges to ensure that your experience with top-class LMS is as easy and problem-free as possible. Visit leadinglearning.com slash topclass to learn how to generate value and growth for your learning business and to request a demo. There obviously plenty of consultants out there who focus on technology and data and analytics. There are certainly plenty at this point who focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. I have to say, I'm not sure that prior to this, I've connected with any who's who've really put those two areas together in their work to the extent that, that you have. So just sort of more from a personal uh, perspective, personal and professional, I'd love to hear what your path was to, to focusing on that connection between technology and data on the one hand and DEI on the other? 
Yeah, for sure. So I actually uh, came from a technical background. I worked in management consulting as well for a number of years, worked for tech companies. And my background is actually in data architecture and engineering. And, you know, everything in that space that you do is based on data. And especially when you're consulting, right, it's you can't present to a client, you know, you need to invest this much in new data architecture without being able to show those key data points. And I was actually doing a project in management consulting, and I was working with the HR or talented organization group that we call it. And they were defining different change management initiatives for employees. If you're not familiar with change management, essentially, they were implementing a new system, and they needed to train a ton of people on this system. And it was shocking to me that none of this was done using data. It was all just based off of, I think this person is a champion, so needs this type of training, whereas I think this person is technically sound and they need this type of training. They weren't looking at learning development or LMS data to understand where they stand. They weren't looking at their HIS data, anything to really be able to say that these individuals would require this type of training to support their needs. And it shocked me. And it shocked me that all of our engagements were like that, just kind of like based off of gut feel or what someone said. And so we ended up bringing in the concepts that we use in, you know, data architecture and engineering to that change management initiative. And that kind of sprung a whole bunch of work around like, oh, what a great idea. Why haven't we done this before? And then that kind of expanded into the diversity, equity and inclusion world. It was the same thing. It was everything was just based on gut feel, not evidence based. And then what was happening is things weren't working right? Because we didn't do enough research in the beginning to be able to say, this is what employees need. This was what will yield the most value. These are, you know, what the outcomes were. It was just like, yeah, let's, let's do it. We think this will work. So I kind of worked with these organizations to bring in this data and really focused on the people analytics side of it. So how do we gain more by understanding more about people? And then it kind of sprung into this. And after a while, I was like, why am I doing this for this consulting company? I should start my own. <laughs> and that's mm-hmm. how I moved into this space on my own. I've felt that uh, urge myself in the past. And yes. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Now, when it, when it comes to, you, you talked about HRIS systems, LMS systems, I mean, when it comes to implementing and leveraging different types of technology platforms or systems, I know this is a, a place where you have a lot of experience. Um, I mean, what are some of the common issues that you see arise specifically with respect to diversity, equity, and inclusion? And then what are some of the steps that organizations need to take to manage those challenges effectively? Oh, so many challenges. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So one I mentioned already, you know, across an employee life cycle, just to explain that you have your recruitment, onboarding, professional development, retention and recognition and offboarding. And those five areas of an employee cycle tend to have their own systems associated to them. So you're an HR professional, you know, most HR professionals don't have strong understanding or background in data, how, how HR was historically taught, Right. You're now expected to bring in all of these different sources of data, merge them to understand what's going on with employees. That's the first problem. The experience, like it's a very difficult challenge to do uh, something like that and start to drive very, very important insights out of that. The second challenge is that, you know, HR data is very, very private. So even if you're a large organization and let's say you have a center of excellence for your IT departments and you want to go to them to help you with this analysis, that is also very difficult to do because you're dealing with such identifiable data that's obviously you can't share with just any type of developer. So there's a whole bunch of privacy things that need to come into play. 
And then the last piece is employees also really don't trust as much organizations to provide a lot of personal data and self-identify. So there's that piece as well, where you have data that's not very accurate. Because historically, you know, you didn't maybe want to share your background or share your caregiver status and things like that because of how it would be treated. So now HR professionals want to kind of move into this data-driven area and space. And in fact, it's being demanded. Every business domain across an organization has to prove metrics, right? But HR still is very, very behind where they're not doing that as much because of some of these challenges. I always give the example of HR is kind of like where marketing was almost 10 years ago mm. and maybe even 15 years ago when you marketing would be made up of like a bunch of creative people. And I mean, marketers are still very creative, but they would be like, oh, we're going to go out into this market. Why? Because I feel like it's a good idea, right? Like it wasn't based on data. Now you can't be in marketing if you don't have an understanding of data. It's primarily their main role of how they go out into different markets, sell, et cetera. And that's kind of this transition period with HR, where we're getting a new wave of HR professionals that are a little bit more data literate and understanding this. And we're trying to transition people that are in this profession to upskill and learn about data so that they can start to also drive a lot more impactful insights. Well, I think that comparison with marketing is particularly fruitful, partly because I I think in many ways, I've often used marketing as a a point of comparison to say, look at what's happened with data and technology there. You know, they're using data to know, to learn about behavior and then to, you know, actually do what marketers do to help to impact that behavior. There's a lot that learning and development professionals could, could learn from that and obviously HR professionals as well. But also, you know, so far we've been focused mostly internally in what we're talking about, internal technology systems, internal DEI initiatives, marketing, obviously, externally facing. And and of course, organizations have customers, or in the case of many of our listeners, members that they have to serve. So I'd be interested to hear, how are you seeing thinking evolve in terms of factoring DEI principles into how products are designed, developed, and managed Yeah, great, great point. And when we think about DEI too, we like to think about it in almost like three pillars of your main users. So you obviously have your employees that where most efforts are focused on, I would say today, but exactly to your point, you have the customers that you serve. And then of course you have your suppliers and that's where supplier diversity comes in as well. Mm. Uh, A lot of organizations to your point exactly focus just on the employee side. And we almost forget that organizations are interconnected So if you want to be a sustainable organization that's really supporting DEI comprehensively, you need to also look at the community that you serve and your suppliers and how you're supporting, you know, kind of supplier diversity. And now we're starting to see it a little bit more where I would say, as an example, a lot of organizations are realizing that from the products that they serve, where they're starting to bring in. DEI professionals to comment on that or even employee resource groups to comment. So as an example, let's say a sales team is going into a new market that they haven't gone into and maybe this market is predominantly, let's just say black, right? Some organizations will start to leverage their employee resource groups as an example to say, how does this communication that we're using appeal? Like, do we think this is the right things that we should be saying? What do you think based on your experience? And they're leveraging, you know, DEI organizations like employee resource groups or professionals throughout their organization to help them in these other areas. Similarly with marketing. I mean, we've seen enough marketing campaigns that have gone really poorly because organizations (laughs) have not 
done that, right? Where they'll bring it first into, you know, DEI professionals to comment on, is this something that we should go to market with? Is this something that we're considering the community? And even from a data perspective, looking at, you know, does the employee base represent the community that we're serving? So if we have a customer success line for a specific geographical region and no one from our company works there, will they be able to even serve that user base, right? Like maybe not, right? So it's like things like that, that we're starting to see organizations care about a little bit more and DEI professionals, their roles are expanding more into those spaces. Similarly, even with supplier diversity, we were working with a client and they were running, they run very large events and they were wondering why they weren't able to attract some diverse people to these events. And even something as simple as their food options. It's like, well, you're going into this very diverse community and the only options you have are like hot dogs and hamburgers, right? Like maybe just think about what other diverse suppliers you can bring in from the community that will speak to these people to show that you actually understand the community that you're running this event in as an example. So it speaks to those people. Those are kind of some of the challenges across those areas. And I would say now organizations are starting again to think about it. And this is what really drove our service line around inclusive product design, helping organizations actually get there as opposed to just being like, oh, we know there's an issue, but how do we actually address this? It's so easy to find places where things have gone off the rails. Are are there organizations though that you think are doing particularly well at this? And I, it doesn't have to be a technology-based product, but I'd be particularly interested if you, you know, had technology-based examples that, that you could offer. Yeah, I think some organizations that have historically done this well, I would say, I always give the example of Salesforce. They were one of the first organizations to actually invest in diversity, equity, and inclusion before it was popular, like two years ago, where everyone started bringing in chief diversity officers. Uh, Salesforce has been doing that for years. And they, they did it for a couple of things. One, they realized that people were their largest asset and that if they wanted to develop a really innovative product that would meet the needs of diverse communities, they needed people to do that. They were one of the first organizations also to publicly share a lot of their metrics internally, set up employee resource groups, and they leverage those groups for different markets that they go into, product development. You see a very, very diverse team. They've primarily done that very, very well, especially in the U.S. So I give them as a good example. There's also some organizations that have maybe not done so, so well. And just to give an example of that, where you sometimes see challenges around diversity, equity, and inclusion not being built in with the team. I would say, I'm sure you probably use Bluetooth in your car. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're a woman or or identify as a woman and have a female sounding voice, you'll notice how difficult it is to connect with Bluetooth, Mm. right? And then usually, you know, the, the partner or the husband will say something and it connects automatically. That's such an example of an exclusive product. And what's happening there is the testing data that they're using to build a Bluetooth app, for example, is primarily using male voices as opposed to female voices. Same thing happened, yeah, with like Snapchat as an example, where you take a picture, if you're a person of color, your face doesn't show up as much as if you are, you know, a a person that's Caucasian as an example, because the testing data they're using is primarily Caucasian people. So those are all examples where now you have a product that does not meet like Bluetooth as an example, half of your population, right? Women cannot connect to Bluetooth. They're not going to use the product. They're going to be angry about it. They're going to talk about it online. And, you know, that's now pushing organizations to think about how they're leveraging testing data as an example to make better products. 
Well, that that has me already thinking about artificial intelligence, which I, I want to make sure we talk about here in a minute. But before we get there, or maybe as part of the path to getting there, because it's relevant for our audience, you know, the product is typically going to be some form of educational experience that might be an, an event, a conference, might be a course, or it could even be less formal approaches like community and mentoring. And I know education and training are you know big part of what you do. What do you see as the the particular challenges in ensuring that education and training experiences are able to serve diverse audiences and do it in an equitable and inclusive way? Yeah, great question. So I think there's a couple of things there. One is if you're developing a training program, especially on concepts of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or anything for that matter... I personally think, I mean, a lot of research has shown this too, that I think adults' uh, attention span is about 20 minutes in terms of just listening to a consistent lecture. But for some reason, organizations still like to do the four-hour lecture-based training, right? Which is just like, does not work. You don't retain that knowledge. So when you're starting to think about like, let's say building a training program, even if it isn't in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, how can you start to incorporate more techniques to understand that you have a diverse set of learners? So I may be someone that loves to maybe read, or I may be someone that loves to listen to an audiobook or a podcast, or I may need to draw, for example, to help retain knowledge. So giving people different options when you're developing out this type of training material so you, they can find something that speaks to them and not trying to do just a one-size-fits-all approach. Obviously, budget is always a challenge and you can't just go out and develop everything, but really trying to understand your user base so that you're developing something that will support you know, as much as possible, the mass majority of users or attendees in your in your training program. And there's things you can do very simply. One, ask them, how do you retain knowledge, right? What are some of the things that work for you? You see what you get on previous research. So if you're looking at your, if you have a learning and development system or an LMS system as, as an example, understand where do people drop off on different training programs and then looking at their demographics. Do I notice that Women that are caregivers, for some reason, are only doing their training program between in the earliest of the mornings, as an example. Maybe there is a time constraint for after work, right? So really understanding your users by leveraging data will help you develop a more robust program. And I mentioned already or suggested already that that we need to be thinking about how artificial intelligence factors into this because artificial intelligence is going to be, you know, increasingly making some of the decisions about how we how we participate in, in different types of products, including learning experiences, especially e-learning. So I'd love to hear what do you see as the the major concerns and, and opportunities that we're now facing when it comes to creating products with artificial intelligence, whether that's, you know, using artificial intelligence for design and creation, delivery, or or all of the above? Great question. And I'll start off by saying, I think AI is great and something that's so exciting right now in in our space. But exactly to your point, you need to be very careful with it. And I worry at times that our regulation doesn't move as fast as technology does, which is sometimes concerning when you see all of the amazing progress. And I do truly think AI is amazing and how it's been moving, but the limited regulation around it. So let me kind of just explain a little bit. Anyone that knows anything about AI uh, knows that you have to train it. You tra- mm-hmm. You're training a model. Essentially, it's based on humans and what humans know. 
what do we know about humans? We know things that humans are unconsciously biased, right? When they build things and they're not really necessarily thinking about everything from that perspective. So you run the risk, especially when you're building AI models to have that bias built in. And the challenge there is that now it's built at scale, right? Before you could give the example of you have one bad apple, and creating a problem. But if that one bad apple is building an AI model, right, then you have the challenge. I'll give an example. There was a, um, a financial services organization out of the US, and they were building a mortgage approval process using AI. So as opposed to going to a mortgage broker and requesting, you know, a loan, they were like, we'll feed it historical data, right, to be able to uh, train the model, we'll have people that can help train the model. And then, you know, you submit your application, just like that, you get whether you know if you're approved or unapproved. So what do you think happens? Well, I can already start to, to, to see the problems, right? even as you're saying exactly. it. Yeah. All right. Historically, who didn't get mortgages? You know, Black and Latino people in the US. So what was happening? Now you have this AI model that was built that is now creating challenges with at scale of these individuals getting access to a mortgage. They retracted the model, fixed it, et cetera. But it was a huge challenge. So that's just kind of an example when we're building, you know, AI models and we're using, because you have to use historical data to build them, that that's some of the challenges when we have these systemic issues that are embedded in things that we've done historically. I always recommend organizations, especially HR practices, because they are very afraid of AI, I would say, for a lot of the organizations we speak to because of some of these reasons. One thing I recommend if you are thinking about building some form of AI model within your organization or, you know, investing in that, I always recommend that you set up some form of an AI um, committee or a steering committee that consists of, you know, some HR professionals, data privacy, legal, and maybe an ethics professional to really discuss how it's being built. Where I see that gap is often it's, hey, let's build an AI model. Hey, developer, data scientist, go build it. And we're expecting that data scientist or developer to have all of this knowledge on bias, et cetera, just at a whim. They didn't go to school for that. Why would Mm -hmm. we expect them to just know that? So we need to put those safeguards in place so that, you know, we're making sure that what we're building isn't inherently biased and creating more challenges for organizations at scale. But to wrap up this conversation, I'll I'll pivot us away from AI and, and machine learning back into to human learning and, and specifically your own learning, because we, we are the leading learning podcast. So we always like to ask our guests about their own approaches to, to lifelong learning. So I'll just put that out there. How, how do you approach your own lifelong learning? Yeah, great question. I, I mean, there's obviously the traditional ways. I love listening to podcasts and, and getting exposure in that way, as well as reading. But I would say one of my favorite ways to to learn is actually getting exposure to groups of people that I would never maybe cross paths with. Just the other day, I was at I was in, I was kind of invited to a Russian Orthodox family's house for dinner, and you know, I, I given I would never kind of fall or kind of cross paths with someone in that uh, faith as an example, but it was just so amazing to see, you know, their perspectives, how they, you know, different things that they do to gain exposure into those areas. So I would, I would encourage people to try and get as much exposure as possible, especially being in DEI. I find, you know, there's a thought and a process of, you know, what 
a lot of DEI professionals think, but I always try to get exposure to the other side of where are people maybe not agreeing with some of those areas so that you can just bring in different perspectives and really be able to think through, you know, why is someone not maybe supporting this? So you can instill empathy on both sides. So I'd say exposure is one of the most important things that I think someone could do for lifelong learning. Miranda Mackay is founder and CEO of Mackay Consultants, a firm focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and inclusive product design. In the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 372, you'll find links to her profile on LinkedIn and the Mackay Consultants website. Salisa and I would be grateful if you would rate the Leading Learning Podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen, especially if you find the show valuable because ratings help us show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. And please spread the word about leading learning, whether in a one-on-one conversation with a colleague or a personal note or on social media. In the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 372, you'll find links to connect with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks for listening and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. Mm-hmm.